listening to a Living Word Family Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about Living Word Family Church, make sure to check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Now, on to the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Living Word Family Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, Here again, as always, is our esteemed Senior Pastor Scott Millis. Welcome, Pastor Scott. Good Glad to be to here. Have you aboard. Hi, everybody. And, uh, and we've got the Zach of all trades, Zach Benzel here with us, uh, running the computer, running sound, and just being awesome in general. Hello. So, And uh, I'm Matt Kreider, uh, Youth Pastor at Living Word Family Church, so we're happy to have you guys with us. And uh, Pastor Scott, we have our special guest with us again today. With us once again, Dr. Joe Thomas of Urbana Theological Seminary. And as promised, we are now going to talk about the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And I have got a few things that I might jump in question-wise, but uh, why don't you just take off, Joe, and tell us, uh, because we're, we're, uh, we're going to try to squeeze as much of this. We're going to try to squeeze maybe the most significant religious event <laughs> of the last millennium into a 30-minute 30 30 discussion <laughs> here. So uh, without further ado, why don't you take off and uh, start where you want to start? Sure. Um, you know, the we are celebrating the 500th anniversary of uh, what was people have called the the nailing of the 95 theses to the Wittenberg door, which happened uh, October 31st, uh, 1517. And uh, this uh, this really, um, you know, um, unbeknownst to Martin Luther, uh, who was the one who did the nailing, uh, was not intended to start a you know the revolution that it became uh he was he was looking to uh bring some reform to the church uh the church really had been the medieval church had been in a a period of probably maybe two or three centuries of actively trying to figure out how to reform itself and really continued to be unsuccessful in in many many ways um uh, it, the problems were extensive. Uh, they they ranged from uh, you know people who were in the chair of of the pope down to a priest and different priests who uh, were just you know succumbing to sexual immorality and were succumbing to uh, you know just uh, greed with money and uh, you know pretty much all, all the foibles of, of humanity that you can think of. And so it ranged from, from that to uh, a, a problem uh, spiritually, I think, for uh, particularly uh, the, sort of the, the, the man on the street, if you will, um, who didn't really have a, a, a spirituality that was for him or her uh, because the, the spirituality of the medieval church was really geared towards uh, monks and nuns. And we can talk more about that uh, a little bit later. But for just your average guy and gal who, who were working, you know, uh, in, at the farm or doing some kind of trade, um, you really were just required to come to church or to mass uh, just once a year. That's all you were required wow. to do. And, and so you had this, you had one, you had a great swath of people who really didn't even know what the faith was all about. And, and secondly, um, uh, we're, as it turns out, we're yearning uh, for something deeper. And then you also had then those who were, like Martin Luther, who was a monk, who were trying to 
please God, trying, trying to figure out how, how can I have this relationship with God and, and, and going the routes that they'd been told they needed to go, in the case of Martin Luther, into the monastery, doing the things that you're supposed to do. And for him, L- Luther is such a personality that whatever he, he thought you were supposed to do, he would take it all the way to the end. There was, there was little compromise in this guy. That's going to work well for him in terms of the Reformation, mm-hmm. not so well for him in terms of relationships with people who slightly, in some cases, disagree with him. <laughs> we can talk about that more later as well. I always say about Luther, if he was your friend, man, this would have been the best friend in the world. Fun, uh, loyal, uh, uh, clever, I mean, you know, profound. But if he was your enemy, <laughs> yeah. he was one of the worst enemies that you could possibly have. Wow. Okay, So he represents, Luther represents uh, the center, the center of Christian spirituality in the medieval church. And at the end of the day, it proves itself inadequate. And that's, that's where we're going to end up with this story. But the 95 Theses really was... Um, <clears throat> Something where he saw an indulgence seller by the name of Tetzel who was going around selling indulgences. And these indulgences, if you purchased one, if you bought it, so this is a part of the problem as well. The faith had been monetized. Yeah. Okay, You could buy stuff. If you bought it, um, you, you were supposed to get fewer years in purgatory, which was a place that you'd go after death to kind of purge uh, venial sins, as they're called, minor sins, before you're able to enter into the presence of God. Uh, Tetzel went further and, and even uh, was saying, hey, this is going to get you right into heaven. You know, this is going to get you out of hell right into heaven. And, and so uh, he's protesting against that. And what uh, Luther doesn't even realize is that he's about to pull a string that it's going to begin to unravel a whole tapestry called the medieval church. And, and, and I'm convinced he has no idea of that. And yeah. in fact, right. as he moves forward, different events are going to just open his eyes and make him first kind of recognize uh, different aspects of, of some of the great insights that he has into the scripture, like justification by faith alone. He's going to realize oh, wow, the implication for this is larger than I even realized, okay? And and so many of the debates that are going to come after he he puts the 95 Thesis on the door are are going to open his eyes to the implications of of these biblical insights that he's having and then ultimately lead to some of this corruption as well and, and realizing the, uh, the, the kind of the monetization of the faith and how that is, a, is a, an additional problem that's going on. Wow. Yeah, that, I, that's something that I've seen as well as my kind of brushing up in preparation for this interview. Uh, certainly that he did not set out to dismantle the Catholic Church. That no. wasn't his goal. No. Reform was his goal. Uh, but also things that, uh, that show up in the, in the 95 Theses and, and then even more explicitly in these debates. Tell a quick story. I used to always want to have a discussion with my Catholic friends. I didn't have any growing up. I, I think I knew one Catholic in grade school. But when I got to college, a lot of these Chicago kids um, in ROTC, you know, they were interested in 
my spirituality. And so we would have these discussions. And one of the things I always tried to get them to explain to me, because Catholicism was a mystery to me. And I don't say any of this to disparage Catholics. I've got good brothers and sisters who, who, are, who are Catholics. But I always wanted to get them to explain to me what is the biblical ground for your belief in such and such. And they could never tell me. So I finally, uh, and this was, I think, while I was still uh, a Rama student, I, I, I kind of gave up getting this information from a Catholic, and I went and bought a copy of the, of the Catechism. And I was shocked when I opened it up. And in the opening chapter, it says there are two sources of doctrine, Scripture and church tradition. Yeah. I had no idea. Until that moment, I had no idea. My jaw hit the table. Right. And Luther attacks that, doesn't he, or questions it. Right, the, the fact that tradition can be a source of doctrine. A- absolutely. In fact, um, uh, as these debates uh, start, and and uh, his first one is at the the, the Diet of Leipzig, um, with uh, Johann Eck, who's a great great scholar. Um, uh, he is he's pushed by Eck because Eck Eck sees it. Eck sees. Uh, where Luther's thinking is going, maybe before even Luther does, and and he's he's trying to push him because he he wants he wants to to set a trap so Luther, as a misstep, gets himself in trouble. Well, like I said earlier, Luther is a pretty fearless guy, and and so he's driven by his convictions, and as he moves forward in this debate, he he famously, you know, says that. Um, councils, church councils, which is where some of what, what they call tradition comes from, church councils and popes who can speak authoritatively for the church at times as well, right? They have, right. That, they have that authority. Can err. That's a revolutionary statement yeah. in the early 16th century. Yeah. And, and then he goes on to defend... Uh, his his you know what he what he thinks is the foundation of our faith uh, sola scriptura scripture alone and and so he's pushed and as soon as that happens now this this monk who no no one really knows anything about uh, word quickly goes down to Rome right. and they start to hear about this guy who's questioning uh, the authority of church councils and the papacy. Can I ask you quickly, I don't know if you can answer quickly, would the uh, impact of this Sola Scriptura have taken off? Would it have had that, 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 imp- that idea, that principle? Would it have had the impact it had but for the timing? Gutenberg, the, the, the people had access to the Scriptures now, didn't they, or at least potentially, when they wouldn't have 50 years before, 100 years before, certainly. Well, um, I wouldn't say access yet to the scriptures. What I would say is access to pamphlets that Luther and then over time other right. reformers start to get. So right. the initial advantage of the Gutenberg, well, you're cor- absolu- uh, the Gutenberg Press, you're absolutely right. This, this, this is basically uh, pretty equivalent to like the Internet for us. Uh, it allows for the very first time uh, for you not to handwrite everything so you can print, right? You can make lots of copies and get them all over Europe. So in that sense, it's, it's revolutionary at the beginning of the Reformation because the ideas of Luther and others spread quickly. 
And right, that would not have happened before because it would have been a very slow process. So absolutely. And Erasmus had kind of paved the way for some of this, correct? What's the line? Is the, he laid the egg that Luther hatched, right? A lot of his writings, pamphlets had already been distributed, correct? Yeah, which he hated that quote, by the way. Did he really? Yeah, Erasmus and Luther end up at odds with each other. Erasmus stays in the Catholic Church. Uh, a, a lot of it is just, just temperament differences. Uh, Erasmus is, is all about peace, mm. reconciliation, friendship. Uh, Luther is is just a semi going 100 miles an hour, <laughs> right. you know, and, and it's inevitable that they're going to crash right, into each right. other, it's, and it's not pretty. Uh, but Erasmus, yeah, Erasmus, um, uh, he, he's important in many respects. He's, he's uh, a lot of people th- right, think of him as sort of leading up, kind of preparing some of the groundwork for the Reformation. One, he created these beautiful satires where he made – fun of, right? We all know if you want to bring powerful people down, the best way to do it is ridicule, right? Because you delegitimize them with ridicule. Right. And you see this in our day, right? Yeah. yeah people, yes. how, how are you going to try to bring down leaders? You delegitimize them with ridicule, with right. humor, right? right. And, and uh, uh, Rasmus was great at this using satire. And he would do things um, like he would say, you know, hey, Look at the pomp and circumstance of the Pope when he travels, right? You got these immaculate carriages, gold everywhere. You know, people are dressed up, you know, the people that are protecting, you know. And, and he, he would compare it to um, Jesus and the 12 disciples. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but he would do it in such a clever, funny way that you yeah. can just imagine people, most people would have to hear this, right, it being read out to right. them. And just laughing, right? Because it was, and, and what it did, it, it delegitimized. So he was good on that level, but he also uh, creates the first, what we call the first critical New Testament book. Critical here is a good word, not a bad word. Critical meaning that he goes back to the earliest manuscripts that we have, Greek manuscripts, brings them into what becomes then a Greek New Testament, 1516. Okay, so last year was the 500th anniversary for that, 1516. And what this does is it creates its own revolution, um, which is the kind of the second part to the Gutenberg uh, invention, uh, because he realizes that the Vulgate Bible, which is the Latin Bible that people are using in the medieval church up to the time of the Reformation, has mistranslated some things, and and one particularly really important one. There's a Greek word called metanoia, and it means repent. It's our word for repent. And uh, Jerome had translated it penance, to uh, penance. Well, a whole theology is right. built on that mistranslation, <laughs> right? right? Wow. wow. And, and so uh, that that's so uh, Erasmus just brings all kinds of you know kind of food for fodder type stuff. And, and so um, uh, the revolutionary part there is, is that Luther, Tyndale, and, and some others end up then using Erasmus's work to translate into the vernacular, into the language of the people. And so Luther, German, Tyndale, uh, English. And so then the, the Gutenberg printing press, that invention, is able then to mass copy those, and of course this becomes a hallmark of the of the of the Reformation, which is every person needs to 
be able to read the scripture for themselves. Erasmus has this beautiful poetic introduction to one of his books where he talks about his goal is to see uh, the the man uh, in the field uh, uh, being able to think about the scriptures he's read, the the maiden being able to sing the scriptures. It's all very uh, scripture-centric uh, and, and focused. And, and so the Reformation is going to allow then first the translation of, of a more accurate uh, New Testament particularly, then the uh, propagation because of the printing press. And then kind of the third thing is then this begins a, an, an educational revolution in Western society because the Reformation countries are like, everybody has to read because they need to read the scriptures so they know their faith so that they know how to follow Christ. So you might have asked yourself sometime in your lifetime, why is it that there's this huge jump forward in sort of Western European countries? Basically, for the most part, maybe the exception like France, Reformation-oriented countries. It's because of this educational revolution happens. And as soon as you start educating everybody, right? Yeah. Everybody starts being able to bring their gifts and talents to the table. And now, right, scientific, right. Uh, technological innovation, medicine, right? All these areas start to open up because you just have more people at the table right. bringing their gifts. Wow. And, um, you know, so it brings me to my, my favorite piece of legislation in the history of the world um, uh, enacted by the Puritans in the 1600s. And it's called the the Old Deluder Satan Act, O-L-E, Old Deluder Satan Act. And it's an, a piece of legislation that they passed that once you have 200 uh, people in a small town, you have to start a school. And you have to start a school so that everybody can read, so that they can read the scriptures, so that Satan can't delude them with, an, with, a, with a deception. Wow. So... <laughs> Wow. That's a piece of legislation. No right kidding. <laughs> huh. That's beautiful. I have to ask you about something. Uh, now, I might have a detail here wrong or two because I was kind of scrambling to prepare for this. But uh, tell me, didn't Luther live for a while on a diet of worms? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> boom, boom. <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, famous, famous diet, however, right? Can you, uh, you want to remark a little bit about it? Sure. This is where he was really kind of. Back, you, you mentioned being backed into a corner. You yeah, know, the, I, he was called on to recant on three separate things. Correct and or yeah, yeah what, works but, comments and uh, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, essentially, uh, first he gets excommunicated from the church, right? And in great Luther fashion, he takes the the uh, the the excommunication um, pamphlet that's sent to him. It's called a bull, uh, and uh, he burns it. Uh, publicly. Uh, so he's excommunicated, and then uh, the uh, Diet of, of Worms, or Worms, uh, is brought about by the emperor. So now he's going to be judged as a citizen. The first one, he's been judged as a Christian. Now he's going to be judged as a citizen, and he's called to recant of his writings. And, you know, he is presented in front of the emperor. His own... Um, sort of nobleman who's his protector, Frederick the Wise, is there also. In fact, Frederick makes it possible for Luther to do what he does because right. Frederick is, keeps him in safe territory. Of course, the, 
the church says, you know, come down to Rome for us to have this diet. And, and of course, everybody says, hey, don't forget John Huss, Johann Hus, who's, who's from uh, Czechoslovakia, we'd call today, the Czech Republic, um, who went to a famous council in 1414 and was burned at the stake. <laughs> okay? Yeah. He was a sort of an early reformer. I remember I said yeah. it had been reform had been in the air. Right. So Frederick's like, you are not leaving my territory. <laughs> and so that's why it ended up where it ended up. And, uh, and so he, he famously, you know, just says that, that I can't, I can't recant, you know, God help me. And, and the next day, Frederick, uh, when Luther just leaves the, the castle and, and the city gates, Frederick sends, uh, writers who are disguised, um, to grab him and they, they whisk him off to a castle, um, and he stays there for about a year or so, and that's actually where he translates uh, the Bible uh, in, in the New Testament. He does the Old Testament later. Um, you know, I mean, you're in exile. What are you going to do? Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you, you know, I, I got nothing better to do. I'm going to translate, translate the Bible. I mean, you've got to know these, these leading reformers were amazingly gifted people. Yeah. Zwingli down in um, Zurich, Switzerland. Um, <clears throat> he has most of the New Testament memorized in Greek. Wow. Uh, Calvin. I mean, these, these are just top-tier sort of, you know, whether you agree, disagree, you know, quibble with their theology and whatnot. I mean, these are top-tier people. Yeah. And that, I think, tells you something about the power of the uh, rediscovery of the gospel is that even the best people recognize that this is something really, really special. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Now you kind of, I had a question. I don't know if we still have time, but you kind of touched on it a little bit. I was curious about what um, the church's reaction to all this that you kind of touched about how they were trying to you know, come down to Rome and stuff. I didn't know if there was anything more extensive that they did to try to kind of quell this before it got too much ground. Boy, this is this is where it really gets interesting and complicated. Yeah. Um, so you, you have a, a little group of people called the Turks, who are Muslims, who are at the gates of Vienna. And everybody's nervous that they're going to take Vienna. If they take Vienna, all of Central Europe is open to them. Okay, They've already taken Constantinople in 1453. Now they've moved up to Vienna. So, you know, this, this is where becoming a church historian is really interesting because you're trying to, you know, in the scriptures, right, we, we know, we see God's hand. It's, it's right. stated clearly. In church history, it's not, right? This is not revelation. So we're trying to do our best to discern what's going on. And, and I like to try, to try to say, well, let's, you know, try to see how, how was God at work, you know. And, and, and admittedly, you know, it's, um, uh, it's, it's not sort of absolute statements, you know, uh, but maybe, maybe helpful statements. And, and so the Turks, by being where they're at, actually uh, make it so that the different lords and princes, and of course the Pope is a prince also. He's, he's a, Pope Julius II wanted to be known as the warrior Pope. 
I, I don't know if that strikes anybody mm. as as, as kind of odd. Yeah, <laughs> he he, uh, he led an army. Okay, and and so all, every, all of these powerful political figures oh. were nervous, and so they only wanted to go so far in fighting with each other because their fear was if the Turks take Vienna, we gotta be re- we gotta be ready to go. Okay, so that's part of it. That's part of it. Uh, and and so the church, the medieval church, was restrained uh, because it could only do so much out of fear. Right. And then maybe a layer below that, you just had the normal everyday princes fighting each other, wanting to take more territory, right? And so the alliances are always shifting and moving. And, and so... In all this, this is how I like to think of it, in all this human sin of hubris, right, of, of wanting conquest, God uses all that to protect, in a way, this fledgling reformation that's going on. Huh. And, and so I, I, I love to kind of see how, our human fo- how God uses our human folly to do wow. his purposes. Oh, yeah. And and to me, this is this is one that's a little easier to see, I think. And so, you know, with earthly eyes, we would say the Turks at Vienna is not a good thing. But with spiritual eyes, it takes on a whole different sort of look to it. Interesting. That's cool. Well, that was a fast half hour, and uh, I feel like we've just scratched the surface. So, um, Dr. Thomas, I think. would be well if you would sign this document agreeing to come back. <laughs> now, can we uh, offer you an informal invitation to return at some time in the near future and talk a little more church history or talk about whatever God puts on your heart? Yeah, would love to. Appreciate your time with us here. Yes, thanks thank for you coming so over. Yeah. This has been rich. Awesome. It's gone much too quickly. Uh, thanks for being with us. Thank you out there in listener land for being with us as well. Uh, check back soon for further episodes. God bless you. Have a great week.